you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now, and uh, they do have Bibles. If you just wave and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. We do want you to hear the Word of God this morning and uh, be able to follow along as well with your eyes, and they'll be happy to accommodate you. On Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in uh, chronological order, and uh, we've been a number of years in this, and I love the investment of the time and the life and the ministry of Christ. I know some people were uh, hoping that we would get to his resurrection uh, by next Sunday, and uh, they're new to the church. Um, so we're probably not going to get to the resurrection till October. But anyway, we will beat next Resurrection Sunday, and I'm feeling very confident about that. But. The passages are so rich, and you really don't want to race through anything. And uh, we pick things up in chapter 14, three verses, 12 through 14. And Jesus, our Lord, says, most assuredly, I don't like it in the New King James. It's one of the, I like the New King James, I don't like that. Don't take my verily, verily away from me. That's a song, I think, just waiting to be written, isn't it? Verily, verily, Jesus said, which means truly, truly, I say to you. So what he's saying is very, very significant. Everything he said was significant. This is extra so to get our attention. Verily, verily, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Wow. And greater works than these he will do. Double wow there. Because... I go to my father. Now, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word. We love it on the printed page. But Lord, we never want it to stay there. We want you to take every bit of this Bible and work it into every part of our life, all of our thinking, all of our doing, all of our feeling, all of our perspective, Lord, all of our service, our relationship with you and with others. And so this morning we ask that by your Holy Spirit, who is present with us today, that you would take all of the greatness and the majesty, I mean, the infiniteness of these verses and take them off of the page and, Lord, write them on the fleshly tablets of our heart. Give them a deep daily working place in each one of our lives. That's what we've come for, Lord, not just to hear, but also, Lord, to have it affect our lives and change our lives, build us up. And so we pray for that work today. And we look forward to experiencing it now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Jesus is in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples on the final night of his life prior to the cross. The entire scene in, in the atmosphere of that upper room is utterly dominated by a single great theme. And the great theme is a theme of separation. Jesus has declared to the disciples in verse, chapter, in, in verse 2 of chapter 14, 
that he is leaving. You think about how that must have absolutely stunned them and that he's going. They've been with him for three and a half years. I mean, face to face, side by side, day and night. And then now all of a sudden he gives the indication that he is now going to leave them and he is going to, following his death, burial and resurrection, return to the heaven that he had come from. And then in verse 28, he speaks once again of his leaving and the impact of this, even him speaking about his departure to say nothing of actually departing. It left the disciples very, very troubled, deeply troubled, as we've seen in recent weeks. And they are suffering from a fair case of separation anxiety in their lives over the news that he is going to be leaving them. Jesus begins to comfort them concerning the upcoming separation by the single greatest thing that he could have done to comfort them, in my opinion, and that is he promised them that he would return. So if somebody I love is leaving and, and they're heading off and my life has grown very, very dependent upon them, I suppose the most important thing that that person could tell me is they're coming back. And Jesus tells them that. Thomas then uh, raises a question of Jesus. And, and, and then after that, Philip makes a request of Jesus. And Jesus takes the time to deal with both of those issues. And in doing so, provides us with additional revelation of himself. But then as we get back to we get to verse uh, 12 now he returns to his instruction to the disciples concerning this coming separation between his leaving and his return. And in verse 12, essentially, Jesus declares that despite his absence, his work is going to go on. That had to be one of the questions that the disciples was thinking about. Wait a second. Where are you going? You can't go now. I mean, you've invested 33 and a half years of your life. In your work in establishing uh, God's kingdom here in this world, three and a half years of public ministry, all of the great things that you've done, the miracles, the teaching and everything. And now you're going to leave. And and if you leave, this is all going to dry up within weeks and disappear in human history. And Jesus said, no, that's not what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, but the work is going to continue. But the work is going to continue now through you and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit through your lives. As we notice, as we think about what was this work that Jesus speaks of last week, we noticed in verses nine through eleven, as he's talking about his works and and, uh, and and that they're going to do the works he did. They're going to do greater works than he did. We think, well, what in the world are these works? And included in his works was the ministry of the miracles, the ministry of the supernatural. As Jesus had healed, as he had raised the dead, as he had turned water into wine, as he had his whole life, his whole public ministry has been one that's absolutely mocked by the supernatural. And Jesus declares here that just as he had done all of this supernatural and all of this miraculous in his life and ministry in the world, this was now going to continue. But it also spoke of the ministry of speaking the word, God's word to this world. 
through the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, just as Jesus had done during his life and his ministry. These are the works that Jesus is talking about. Miracles, wonderful manifestations of miracles and signs and wonders, but also the teaching of God's word. Those, Jesus said, that's the work that's going to continue. Speaking for God, doing the miraculous for God. And I think it's very important to understand behind all of Jesus' teaching and behind all of his miracles that, that he performed, that out of, behind all of it was a desire for the Lord to be glorified. That's what he was concerned about, for his heavenly Father to be glorified. When Jesus raised someone from the dead or he did these different miracles, it, well, he wasn't showing off. We know that. It wasn't, listen, I just wanted to show you what I could do even before I had a, you know, breakfast. He didn't just do miracles. He didn't just talk to talk and to do miracles. Every word that he spoke, every miracle that he did was designed to bring attention to his father that as the people would listen to those words and as they would see those miracles, they would come to learn what God the Father is really like and then commit their lives by putting to him by putting their faith in Jesus, the Savior that the Father had sent into the world to save us from our sins. It was to glorify God. And when a person will glorify God, they will then be eager to know him and eager to follow him. Notice that Jesus declared that as his disciples there in verse 12, as those who believe in him, the works that he did, we're going to do also. Well, what were the works that Jesus did? Well, he spoke for God. He called men and women to repent of their sin because the kingdom of God was at hand. He performed miracles. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. And as we read the New Testament book of Acts, we see it's a 28 chapter book that is just filled with the miraculous from one end of the book to the other. All of it a fulfillment of Jesus's promise here that his work would not end, but that just as he had done it, it would now continue by his Holy Spirit through his people in an equal measure. Just as supernatural, just as amazing as anything that he had ever done. His physical departure did not mean an end to his work. And the supernaturalness of the Christian life wasn't reserved for the apostles, but it's to mark every Christian's life. Very often you will hear taught related to this passage and maybe a couple of other passages like this in the Gospels where Someone will teach that these promises were limited to the apostles because they were the ones that were up in the upper room with Jesus at the time. And so these promises are limited to the apostolic age, to the first century church, the period that's recorded in the book of Acts. But they have no application to us as Christians today. Sure, there's some helpful principles in there, but we shouldn't take promises like this seriously. Nonsense. It's almost as if Jesus anticipated that we'd be tempted to do that, that he defines who this promise is made to. Verse 12 again, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, have you believed in Christ? Have you believed in him as your savior? 
then this is a promise to you. This is not 2,000 year old stuff that we just have to smack our lips spiritually and, and live in envy of people that lived 2,000 years earlier in human history. This is for every believer, first century, 15th century, every century needs what Jesus promises in this, in this uh, three verses. If we believed in him, this is a promise to us. Now, if we think that verse 12, the pr- first promise in verse 12, that we'll do works that are uh, equal to Jesus' works are amazing. He promises something even greater at the second half of verse 12 when he goes on further and declared that we will do even greater works than he did. Because he was going to the Father to then send the Holy Spirit who would do these things through us. That's another week we'll look at that. Well, what in the world does it mean that we, I mean, we can understand on some level, at least have a pretty firm grasp of the works that uh, Jesus did, we will do. But how in the world can we do greater works than Jesus did? I think there's a couple of answers to that. Number one, we will do greater works in terms of quantity, in terms of just the sheer number of works. In Jesus' incarnation, when he was born into this world and took human flesh, he voluntarily put himself in a place of being able to be only one place at a time. Uh, he, he couldn't be five places at a time or ten places at a time. That's a position that he voluntarily took. He could only be in one city, one village at a time. The entire record of Jesus' ministry is that except for what appeared to be kind of a quick trip up into the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, Jesus never left the land of Israel. It's a little, little, tiny, tiny speck of land in the world. Geographically, Jesus, he never went off to Rome. He never headed to Alexandria. He never headed to any of these places. His entire public ministry was limited to that small space known as Israel in, 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 uh, on, on the globe. And then in the first century, the disciples, so many saved, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached just that sermon, to say nothing of the subsequent sermons, and people start coming to know Christ as their Savior by the thousands and the thousands, and then they go to the next village in the next country and to the next you know, section of the world taking that gospel with them, preaching the gospel, God working miracles uh, through them until in the first century, the gospel and, G- and God's people were represented all over the known world. And then today, the day that you and I live in, the world that you and I live in, think about the uncountable millions of Christians who are in every country of this world. And they have taken the gospel with them into those countries And there they are serving God, preaching the gospel, living for God in in those uh, countries all around the world. Numerically, as God is working supernaturally through them, doing greater works than 
than were done in terms of sheer number, even by Jesus himself, as, as these millions of Christians are being used by the Holy Spirit in this way all over the world. But it's not just greater works in terms of, of quantity, but I think he's also talking about greater works in terms of quality. It can't refer, Jesus cannot be referring to greater works than him in referring to a physical miracle. Because Jesus made a habit of raising people from the dead, and I don't know you can do anything better than that. I don't know how you can outgrate that. That's great. Which leaves us with the spiritual realm. And the fact of the matter is, the greatest miracle that a human being can experience, greater than any physical miracle, and I'm not putting down physical miracles, but the greatest miracle a person can ever experience is to be born again by the Holy Spirit. To have God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit come right inside of our lives and live based on our invitation and our faith in Jesus as our Savior, the forgiveness of sins, the ability, the power to now live a completely different life than the life that we lived before Christ, to possess the hope and the confidence of heaven. I mean, it, this is the greatest thing that a person can, the greatest miracle that it can occur in a person's life. As wonderful as any physical miracle is, the effect is, is at best temporal. When Jesus fed those 5,000 men, we don't know how many women and children were with him. He fed those 5,000 men with the five loaves and the two fish until they were glutted. As wonderful as that miracle was in a demonstration of the Father's power and of his ability and his authority over creation, they were hungry the next day. Just like you're hungry the next day after Thanksgiving. You get done eating, you say, I never want to see a turkey again. I never want to see stuffing again. I don't want to see yams again. I don't want to see mashed potatoes again. I don't want to eat another piece of pumpkin pie, not one more than the half pumpkin pie I already ate. That's it. I'm through. I'm done eating for the rest of my life. Ten o'clock that night. You got that refrigerator door open. And you're searching for more food. Jesus calmed the sea. But that sea would rage again another day. Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old daughter, raised from the dead by Jesus, only to die again another day. But the miracle that occurs in a human life upon hearing the message of the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, that miracle continues to hold, continues to give all through this life and all of the life to come. The superiority of that over any physical miracle was spoken of by Jesus when he sent out the 70 disciples to go out, cast out demons, heal people in the villages that Jesus was coming to later. And they did it. 
They cast out demons and they healed people and they came back to Jesus and they said in a loose paraphrase, Jesus, this is just fabulous. We're bossing those demons around like nobody's business. This is terrific. We cast them out and they go out. This is this is the greatest. And we won't paraphrase Jesus. Jesus said to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It truly is greater to save souls than to heal bodies, though I am open to God doing both any and all anything that he wants to choose to perform. This gospel, which changes lives and eternities, would not be preached in its fullness until after Jesus's death. Burial and resurrection. After the final works of his three and a half years of public ministry. This was to be the ministry of the first century church and of every century of the church. This passage teaches us that every Christian should be involved in some way in Christian service. In some way. In Christian work. If he has given us a promise like this. If there is bound up in the promise of verse 12. The promise that we will do works that are equal to Jesus and even greater than Jesus. Who would want to merely put the verse to memory? Who would want to just. Stand on the outside of that kind of a promise. Who would want to even uh, do something as limited as take one, two, three steps into the greatness of that promise? What thinking person? What person who has a passion for God and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit wouldn't take that promise and say, I want to go ten miles, a hundred miles, a thousand miles into that promise. I want to know what greater, great works, as great as Jesus would look like in my life and my ministry. I want to look at and experience and discover and glorify God through the greater works that God wants to do in my individual life. Greater than what he did even through Christ in preaching the gospel. Each one of our lives should be involved as Christians in the expansion of the kingdom of God in this world. The fact that I live and I encumber this earth as a Christian, I don't speak for you at the moment. I use the air, I use the food, I use the fuel. All of that goes on. All of that has the purpose that my life would exist, that in some way, in some doing, in some saying each day, that the kingdom of God is being expanded in this world. His influence is being expanded, that the body of Christ is being strengthened and enriched in some way for my existence and for your existence Living a supernatural life of doing and speaking, which reveals 
to the world around us what our God is like, living a supernatural life of doing and speaking, which brings glory to God through the preaching of the gospel. Crowds of people, when God calls us to, sharing the gospel with people one-on-one, as God calls us to, being faithful to the calling that God has upon each one of our lives, the ministry that he has called us to, whether teaching or evangelism or administration or mercy or helps, and on and on these callings and giftings of the Holy Spirit that are recorded in the Scriptures. It includes being faithful to exercise the spiritual gift or gifts that God has given to each one of us as He would prompt us. Prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, because these verses are so strong, They require a strong, sober looking at them and a strong, sober response to them. We should ask ourselves, if every Christian in the world was as faithful in sharing the gospel with the lost, as faithful to Christian service, as faithful to the exercise of spiritual gifts as I am, then what would be the health of the body of Christ as a result? And it's not a guilt gotcha. I'm not interested in that. Every time I've ever heard that question posed to me in preaching, every single time, it searches me in a wonderful way. And I ask myself, if my life is a Christian, characterizes the health and the strength and the service and the supernaturalness of the body of Christ and the rest of the world, then is the body of Christ and the rest of the world strong? Is it alive? Is it thriving? Is it expanding? Then praise the Lord. Or is it dead, serviceless, silent on life support? And if it's the latter, then this Verse demands that you change because you call yourself a Christian. We're not free to live as if this verse does not exist in the Bible. The work, Jesus said, will go on and the work must go on. And it goes on through us. Someone might say, well, practically, how does that look? In terms of ministry, in terms of service and all, where in the world do we start? I'm, I'm new in understanding the Bible or I'm new as a Christian. What does, this, what does this look like, this heading out into these works and, and doing the same works as Jesus and greater works? How do I get started? One great way to start is to share the gospel with people. Who else is going to share the gospel with people in our neighborhood and in our school and our workplace? If a Christian doesn't, we're going to hire people next to do it, like the nonprofits do at Christmas time. Is that where it goes? It's not where it goes. 
The only people that are going to preach the good news of Christ, that someone preached to us that our lives might change and our eternities might change. The only reason we ever heard that gospel is because some Christian carried it to us. And we then have a responsibility to carry that message to others that haven't heard as well. I think that if in the sharing of the gospel, it's good to grow in that and to learn how to do that. And there's nothing like doing it to learn how to do it. But I think anything that's written by Greg Laurie is a great, great resource on picking up some tips on how to share our faith and to answer questions that might, people might have and then to know how to lead them in prayer to receive Christ as their Savior. These are things that all of us ought to know how to do. And Greg's books are available for sale and booklets in the book in the bookstore and also up, up in the uh, library in this in this same building on the church grounds. We offer evangelism class on a regular basis here. Free tracks are in the literature racks out there to just grab and say, I don't know how to say it yet, but I can hand one of these things out. And just to begin to learn, to grow, take steps in, in sharing the gospel. And then it requires also discovering God's gifting in our lives, his calling upon our lives. Do you realize that every single one of us as Christians have received, the moment we were born again, a supernatural gift of God's Holy Spirit. So that when that gift operates in our lives, our friends, our neighbors, our family, our whoever, would look at us and say, there is no explanation in the physical realm, in the human realm, for the kind of life that that person lives There's at least, even beyond the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that people could look at us and say, there is, that does not come from following any person or any God I've ever heard about. Who and what God is this person following? Because that's a supernatural life. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given in order for our God to be noticed as a result of it and receive glory. Because of the supernaturalness of our lives. You say, well, I, I don't know what my gift is. Let me see. I'll just work my way right down the, the, just the front row here. And there's a work that way. I wouldn't want it to work that way. God will show us what our gifts are. And what our callings are. He's faithful to do it. But sometimes we learn. You've heard the old saying, it's easier to move a a car that's steer a car that's moving rather than one that's parked. And it's true. I think related to God revealing to us what our gifts and our calling is. Oftentimes it happens a little bit easier when we're moving in the right direction on things. But I think it's good to ask uh, ourselves in this middle of this search. As we live in this fallen world, I mean, filled with so much pain and disappointment and heartbreak. As you look at people in the human condition of this world, what breaks your heart? Where's your soft spot toward mankind? I think about Jesus at one point when great, great human need was brought to him. And as he looked at the greatness of this human need and he was going to fix it, he was going to heal in this circumstance. 
But before he even lifted up a prayer to the father related to the situation, the Bible is careful to tell us that he sighed. He just looked at it, pulled in a deep breath, let that breath out, and then moved on. That's what the fallenness of this world and the impact that it has on individual people produced even within Jesus, who was about to take care of the whole problem. Where do you sigh? Where do you sigh as you look at this world? And that's a good place to start serving the Lord. Are you filled with compassion toward women who have had abortions? Is your heart filled with compassion? Is your sigh over the unborn? The desire to stop this thing called abortion in our nation and in our world? A desire to be a voice for the unborn? Then the Modesta Pregnancy Center is a good place to start to take steps in that direction. Not all ministry happens within the boundaries of a local church. It happens all over the world. Do you look at the homeless? That's your soft spot in your heart. Then the gospel mission is a place to begin to pursue that gifting and calling and see what God does with you there. Are you a man that looks at other men? You say, look at the temptations we're faced with. Look at the pressures that we have. Look at the world that's falling apart all around us. Look at the condition of families and marriages. Look at the uncertainty of the workplace. You say, my heart is toward men. And God will put the heart of other people toward other segments of society. But you, you look and say, I want to help men navigate in a godly way everything that they face every single day, then step out into the middle of that. Begin to get involved in in helping men and in ministering toward that group. Others may look and say that what somebody may feel toward men, I feel toward youth. I look at what they face, what they're tempted with, the opportunity to sin like is unbelievable even in the history of our own nation. There are things that I would want to say to them that I wish someone had said to me 20 years ago, and it's a lot worse today than it was 20 years ago. You've got a soft spot for youth. Move in that direction in your gifting and calling. And the same thing can be said where someone says, no, it's not youth, but it's children. That they would be have this foundation built into their life of the things of the Lord so that no matter what happens to them for the rest of their life, they've been raised in that and God has promised he'll bring them back to it no matter what goes on in their life. Or it might be concerning people who are grieving in death, getting involved in grief share. You might have a soft spot for gangs. The rest of us are hoping they shoot each other to death or they call in the National Guard. But you look at him and say, no, God has given me a supernatural softness for this group of people. I've experienced the power of God, what the word of God does in a human life. And I have a heart for those people that step out into it. Might have to do with public schools. And you look and you say, I understand perfectly why anyone who can afford it is abandoning the public school system. But God hasn't given me that heart. He's given me a heart to stay engaged 
And so you volunteer in your child's class. Maybe you run for school board in the city in order to influence it. Because that's God's calling on your life. Or you look at our nation, you look at our state, you look at our city and all of the problems that we face because of a lack of righteousness. And you decide, I'm going to run for political office. Or I'm going to support someone who is called by God to do so. And then if they win, I'm going to hold them accountable to remain righteous once they gain that office. The same thing happens at work, viewing our occupation, where we live and our schools and all. I think about doctors in this community. I come from Napa. One time I was looking at statistics online. And the number of GPs, general practitioners, and internal medicine doctors in Modesto versus in Napa, where I come from, there are two times the number of them in Napa than they are here. No wonder why they can't keep up with the workload. And yet God has called you to do this. You say, I can't usher, I can't do this, I can't maybe and all. But I tell you, in the name of the Lord, I can take on these patients and I can treat them in the way that Christ would treat them. And if we don't know what our gifts and our callings are yet, it's important just to fill a need somewhere. Get your feet wet and God will reveal that to you. Out in the fellowship hall, there's a, a bulletin board out there that's got a listing of all ministry opportunities and then ministry needs. Just look at the needs and just begin to fill a need. Learn what you learn in filling a need and then watch God guide you and watch God honor it. Now, if you're visiting with us here today or you're new to this church, this and you come from another church, this can sound like we're needing a bunch of help everywhere in the church. And I've taken a sermon out to fill all the needs. I'd never do that to you. God has always filled all of the needs that we have in this in this ministry in terms of service and has done it for 25 years. It's not about that. We're not, I'm not trying to do something to anyone, but for us in seeking to know God's calling and his gifting upon our lives with a verse like a, a promise like Jesus gives us in verse 12, who would want to be in in the sitting on the sidelines. I mean, this is a verse that just demands that we jump in and see what in the world God might do through our lives. It's an unbelievable promise. I wouldn't believe it except Jesus said it. Honestly, I wouldn't believe it. But he said it. And what a life there must be that's found there. And notice second in verses 13 and 14, Jesus, his second word of comfort is where he essentially declares in those verses that the line of communication with him, with Jesus in heaven, is wide open through prayer. And Jesus is declaring that communication with him, even as he has gone into heaven, is as wide open until his return through prayer as ever it was when they were dealing with him face to face. He tells them, I'm leaving. Where are you going? Up to this point, if they had a problem, they went straight to him and talked right to his face. 
up to this point in time for three and a half years, if they went out to do what Jesus was calling them to do, then they would go right and they needed something to be successful in what God, Jesus was calling them to do. They would just go up to him and they would ask him for what they needed. This is what's going to happen here now. You're leaving. You're going to heaven. How do we get through to you in heaven? And Jesus is declaring in verses 13 and 14 that communication is going to be as instant and as effective through prayer as ever it was in them talking to him face to face during those three and a half years. I think that sometimes we think that when we pray that somehow this thing is in the hands of the postal service, that it's going to take two to three days to get there or that this our request get get to God by Pony Express or Pegasus or something like that. Some slow means the instant we pray and we ask that in that instant, what we've prayed and asked, God has heard as quickly as as if we had Jesus standing right in front of us to do it personally. I think it's wonderful to realize that about our prayer. We think of prayer far more low and lowly. Then Jesus thinks of it or the perspective of heaven. That's how he says that's how instant. That's how effective prayer is when you talk to me. I hear it immediately and am able to respond immediately. It's just as efficient, just as effective as if we were face to face. Now, these two verses contain some of the most amazing promises associated with prayer found in all of the Bible. I want you to notice in verse 13, and whatever, did you notice that word whatever, and whatever, that's big. Whatever's a big word. It's like you go, you're a little kid, you go with your parents, you know, to the smorgasbord or some kind of a buffet, hometown buffet or something. And they say, Mom, what can I get? Whatever you want. Whatever is a really big word, Mom. You don't use it very often, especially in a buffet. How many plates can I fill? It's a huge word. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then the second great word in verse 14. If you ask anything, whatever, anything, I mean, wow, in my name, I will do it. I mean, this is such a strong encouragement to prayer. I mean, if we were really, you take verses 13 and 14 seriously related to prayer, then none of us as Christians would hardly cease to pray for a minute in the course of a day. I want us to notice, though, what Jesus isn't promising here. Jesus isn't promising that God is obligated to give us everything that we would ask of him, no matter how carnal or how selfish or how sinful or how destructive it might be for us. I'm glad for that. There are false teachers today who teach that this passage and other passages mean that you can basically write your own ticket in life. You, have, you can ask God for anything and, and then hold him to this promise. And that and whatever you ask and anything you ask, God is forced to give that to you. And because we live in a very materialistic society, even as Christians, our tendency is to view this pro, this this promise almost solely in a physical or material realm and rather than a spiritual realm. 
And even they begin to talk about the kind of home you should have, the kind of car you should have, the kind of clothes you should have, the kind of power you should have, the kind of position you should have. And almost always even they are thinking in terms of, of purely material, material uh, things. Whatever I want, God is supposedly obligated to supply it to me. Any home you want, anywhere you want to live. Well, I think I'd like a house right on the shore of Lake Como in Italy. And Lord, I noticed that George Clooney is selling his. <laughs> and I wouldn't be nearly as disruptive in terms of the paparazzi living there and all as he is. Would you give me the um, 37 million or whatever it is? I subscribe to Architectural Digest just to torment myself. It's interesting. It's, it's of some interest to me on a, on a uh, recreational basis. But in the latest issue, they showed a, a renovation, not a building of a building, a renovation of a private estate that cost $38 million just to clean the place and upgrade it. Why do I bother reading things like this? <laughs> but Jesus isn't teaching that. Notice that this promise has a context, and he's speaking this promise to disciples. And we don't have to wonder what a disciple is. Jesus told us what a disciple is. He said, if any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. That takes selfishness out of the way. Let him take up his cross, be willing to die in my calling upon his life and follow after me. That's what a disciple is. A disciple will ask for entirely different things than a materialistic, selfish person will ask for related to a promise like this. These promises aren't given in order that I could fulfill it in Gain every kind of selfish, carnal desire that I might have. And God's word declares it. James himself, James chapter 4, verse 3, he said, You ask, which is good, and do not receive. Uh-oh. Because, that's a reason word, you ask amiss. So apparently we can do that. You ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. I think it's wonderful to realize that God feels perfectly free to say no to any request that I make of him that is sinful or is selfish or is going to do me harm. I'm glad he does it. Second, we notice that these prayers are to be offered, verse 13, in Jesus's name. It's very, very important to notice. Jesus didn't say that, that Jesus said that he didn't say that all of our prayers would be granted, but that our prayers made in his name would be granted. In a Jewish culture, a name represented a person's character. In this culture, we use a name that gets pinned to us as a means of identification by our parents at the moment of our birth. The Jews had a completely different understanding of a name. A name represented the nature of the person that had that name. So to pray something in Jesus' name is to pray and ask for something that's consistent with his nature, with his life, with his teaching, with his will. Jesus, Jesus is saying, if you ask in accordance with, with my teaching, with my life, with my will, you can be confident that you're going to receive that. So I cannot ask God 
to bless me in robbing a bank tomorrow. Because robbing a bank is an activity that's inconsistent with the nature of Christ. I can't ask God to hide from the IRS all the shortcuts that I'm taking, cheating, uh, on my tax return this year so that I can tithe more. Is inconsistent with Jesus' nature. He won't, won't bless something like that. I cannot take, an, as a Bible teacher, and ask God to bless the Bible study that I'm going to give if I'm going to teach error or I'm going to compromise the full strength of God's word because that would be inconsistent with Jesus' nature. It would be inconsistent with who he is. And so God feels free ignoring those kind of requests and, and, the, and, and the promise is limited and wonderfully limited there. Third, notice that this promise is given in the context of Christian service. Ministry is intended to be accomplished through God's answer to our prayers made in Jesus' name. Very important that this is a tremendous promise and I wouldn't limit it to Christian service. But it butts right up against Christian service. And, and there's a reason for that, that we would pray in this kind of way concerning the ministries that God has called us to. And then fourth, these promises concerning prayer are given to those who are like Jesus and that we have a concern for the glory of God, that he would be revealed in this world. That every time we open our mouths and everything that we do would cause people to know a little bit more about him as a result. That's the motive behind the prayer that's being made here. It's not this silly, can I have a bigger boat, God kind of thing. When we run our three score and ten, and I visit you in the hospital or you visit me in the hospital, and they say, now it's just a matter of hours. The boat won't matter. The nothing will matter except our family. And then a time to think about how fully did I use the hours and the days of my life to allow God to be seen through my life in this world. That's what's going to matter one day. What this promise of Jesus is promising is it's a great encouragement to pray big concerning God's work in this world. Pray really big concerning his work. Pray big for vision. Pray big for boldness. Pray big for gifting. Pray big for faith. Pray big for opportunity. Pray big for the effectiveness of our preaching of the gospel, whether to crowds or whether one-on-one, -on -one, for our lives and our ministries, our service to be marked by the supernatural. Pray big for that. Pray big and ask God, God, I want you to work in my life in such a way. I want an anointing on my life that is such that when people listen to me, even in common conversation, what I say and I don't say in the context of everything else that is being said or not said, 
And as they watch my life, that somehow as they would leave my presence, that there would be something of your Holy Spirit left upon them, something of what I've said or done that you are able to say amen to in their lives. This is the way. Walk in it. This is the God that you're looking for. This is the life that you're looking for. Pray big for that kind of life. Pray big for that kind of influence. For the body of Christ. This is the encouragement. One of the crazy things that happens. After we walk with the Lord for a while. We begin to look fondly back on the early months and two or three years of our Christian life. Where we used to pray this big. We used to believe this big. He could call on us to run through a wall. That wall. And we'd run through it for him. All we needed to know it was His will. We prayed for Him to bless the Bible studies, to bless the gospel as it was shared, to bless this uh, help and good deed that I've done in somebody else's life. And we believe God to do something big in our lives, great in our lives. And we wanted more and we wanted more and we wanted more and we weren't satisfied. And then two years turns into five years and five to ten and ten to twenty and twenty to forty until we can sit in a room tonight, this morning. And we can look and say, it has been ages in my life since I've been concerned about his calling upon my life. I go home every week and I debate whether I'm going to be faithful to it for another week, let alone asking God to bless it and to expand it. That we can look back in our lives, not just for days and weeks, but for months and years and say, I can't remember the last time I prayed a prayer like that. I pray to whatever and a and a uh, anything kind of prayer related to my service and the influence for the Lord. And then one day we wake up and it takes a passage like this and a passage like this is an alarm clock to wake us up out of this spiritual lethargy that I myself fall into. I'm not preaching at anyone. It's the strength of the passage. And we begin to look and say, what am I doing? What kind of a tap dance am I doing and calling this the Christian life? A passage like this brings us back. And it challenges us. Are we doing great things for God? Do we even want to do great things for God? And it wakes us up to this. Are we asking great things of God? What kind of impact... These three verses are intended to produce a certain kind of Christian, a bold Christian, a confident Christian, a dissatisfied Christian in a sanctified sense, an awake Christian, a growing Christian. That's what it's intended to do. And it's wonderful to have passages in the Bible that do exactly that in our lives. And as I said I need it as much as the others. I can go through the motions as much as anyone else can go through the motions in this Christian life. Many years ago, it was in 2002, Bill McDonald, who has now gone on to be with the Lord, he was teaching here on a Sunday evening on, on the subject of prayer, and he ended the message 
with an illustration that I've never forgotten in this vein. He said Alexander the Great was accustomed to having a day when he would sit out in an open court and anyone among his subjects, he was head of the Grecian Empire, could come and make a request of him. And one day a, a man came and he was brought to Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great said to him, what do you want? And he said, I'd like a farm for myself. I'd like a dowry for my wife. And I'd like an education for my son. Alexander the Great said, granted. And when the man left, some of his assistants came to him and he said, why did you give that saucy farmer what he asked for? And Alexander the Great said, because he asked big. He said, I get so tired of these people who come to me asking for a gold coin. He said, that farmer made me feel like a king. Doesn't just influence us and impact us. But the very heart of God. Let's do big. Let's believe big. Let's pray big. And let's do it in proportion. And by the grace and spirit of God in proportion to the promises that are found in these three verses. I'd like us just to take a moment and I'm going to hold you over about five minutes if if you don't mind. But I I don't want it to be the end of of the service here. Um, I'd like the worship team to just come forward.